0: Welcome to the Beeson podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of
1: Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson podcast. This is the week in the month when we get to introduce to you a preacher of God's Word and listen to a sermon, our preacher, Dr. Smith, is Steve Bateman. He's the senior pastor of the First Bible Church in Decatur, Alabama. He holds degrees from um, Columbia International University, Dallas Theological Seminary, and Reformed Theological Seminary. He's a wonderful scholarly pastor, with great passion for preaching and for his people.
2: Tell us what we're going to hear from Steve Bateman. Steve Bateman is going to address this matter of the strange disappearance of doctrine from conservative evangelical churches. So he is talking to students who will eventually graduate and will be the theologian or preacher in residence in many congregations. And he does not want to see preachers sacrifice doctrine on the altar of church growth. He's for church growth, but not at the expense of diluting doctrine. I appreciated this, uh, the title, I Fear for You, a pastor's perspective. So he's speaking as a pastor from Galatians chapter four, verses eight through 20. And he has enough boldness to do what Paul did when it came to Galatian Christians to critique and to offer, uh, a criticism that will hopefully divert them from Heterodoxy and move them back into orthodoxy. He creates, he uh, critiques uh, perhaps uh, the most well known preacher in our country um, who has a large, large following, but at the expense of watering down and even going against true doctrine.
1: You know, there's admonition in this sermon and warning in this sermon. You know, there's plain spokenness in this sermon, mm-hmm. actually. But, you know, I've heard a lot of sermons, Dr. Smith, against church growth from people that took churches and dwindled them to nothing. You can't say that of Steve Bateman. Uh, First Bible Church of Decatur is really one of the great churches in our region of the country. It's growing, expanding in all kinds of directions. Uh, He's not against growth, but he just wants you to be careful that in doing this good thing, you don't neglect something else that's really, really important.
2: Yes, yes.
1: Well, let's listen uh, to a sermon preached right here at Beeson Divinity School by Dr. Steve Bateman. In a
0: very, what I think is a very important book that came out last year, Alan Wolfe, the name of the book is The Transformation of American Religion, How We Actually Live Our Faith. Alan Wolfe, who really poses as a mediator, considers himself a mediator between a divided nation here in the United States, between the secularists on one side and the religious people on the other side. And uh, he is a self-avowed Jewish man, non-believer, probably an agnostic, and yet he has a tremendous insight on this whole uh, situation that we find ourselves here in our culture. He, uh, first of all, speaks to, in his introduction, to the religious people of the United States and said, and says, don't worry about all these secularists. You don't have to be afraid of them. Uh, they have been so, they're so committed to the American virtues of liberty and freedom and tolerance and pluralism that they will not harm you and they will not persecute you and this is not a hostile environment. And then he turns to the secular uh, uh, people of the United States and he says, don't worry about these religious people because no matter what they say, they really are pretty docile people. Uh, No matter how loud they roar, they're fairly toothless lions. And they have learned the reality that if you're going to uh, thrive and survive in the United States in this culture, that you have to adapt religion to certain 21st century realities. So there's been such an accommodation of religion in general. But uh, not only that, evangelicalism in particular, that really you don't have to worry, he says to the secular side, because these religious people are no threat to you. One of the more interesting chapters is uh, innocuously titled Doctrine. That's all it says. Chapter 3 is Doctrine. But it's the subtitle that is a little bit more foreboding. The subtitle says, The Strange Disappearance of Doctrine from Conservative Protestantism. He uh, develops his thesis throughout the chapter, and then he compares mainline churches with evangelical churches. And he says the doctrine has disappeared from mainline churches as well as evangelical churches, but for different reasons. And then he says in this quote, in response to the diversity of faiths among their members, these mainline churches go out of their way never to proclaim any kind of triumphal superiority of one over the others. Evangelical churches lack doctrine because they want to attract new members. Mainline churches lack doctrine because they want to hold on to those declining numbers of members that they already have. And so it came to be that a Jewish man, an agnostic, warns us, gives us some insight into our church that the reason doctrine has disappeared from the churches of America is because we have sacrificed doctrine at the altar of church growth. And when we do that, we are saying that we are willing to soften the edges of it and dilute it a little bit and make it more palatable to contemporary tastes Uh, in the interest of adding to our numbers. I am not against church growth. When I was in seminary, I did not dream that I would inherit some church and some other man's work and so I could see the numbers decline rapidly. That's not what I'm about. But the question is for us in the ministry is, church growth at what price? Um, I think this uh, is a timely passage here in Galatians. I think the book has always been timely and all centuries since it has been written, but it is especially timely for us because it demonstrates for us that the pressure on pastors to downplay doctrine in the interest of numerical success is not a new thing. It is a very old thing. And it was what Paul, I think, is dealing with in Galatians. He is, uh, you know the story. Don't ask me North Galatia or South Galatia. It's South Galatia. Don't ask me all of that stuff. You know, the Judaizers who'd slipped in and they'd tried to to take back this church, these churches that Paul had established, and they're trying to lead them back to a legalistic system in their approach to God. And so it is with great urgency that he begins this letter. And he gets right to the point after his greetings in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. This deserting is a military term that you have become traitors to the one who called you by grace. You're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, anathema, let him be damned to hell. And those kind of words have a way of setting the tone for the book of Galatians, and he goes on to say some of the necessary components of this gospel. For instance, you'll see it, and I don't have time to go through a lot of these, but chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If there's some other way to heaven besides Christ dying on the cross, God would have said, take that way, spare my son, but he didn't spare his son because there's no other way. Grace alone then, and Christ alone, and then to make his case, he appeals to the authority of Scripture alone in chapter 3, where he says... uh, He makes this case over and over again. It's the law, verse 21, therefore opposed to the promises of God. Absolutely not. Verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And then in verse 24, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So some of you are very happy right now. You have at least four of the soul laws. You've got grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone and scripture alone. These have always been offensive truths. They're offensive to human pride because they leave absolutely no room for human boasting, not even a little bit. If you didn't do anything for your salvation, you absolutely have no room to take any credit for it. And for that reason, they have been opposed through the years. And as you study the history of the church, you'll find that uh, a lot of... God's people have sweat for these truths, and they've struggled for these truths, and they've been in prison for these truths. They have bled for these truths, and they have died. And it is still an act of high treason for those who claim to be soldiers of Jesus Christ to deny them. When he gets to chapter 4, verse 8, which was read so eloquently a little while ago, he is in great anguish as he speaks to these people in which he has invested so much. And I won't read it again. He only gave me, what, 20 minutes? When am I supposed to be done? I'd like to know, so I end up, I stop talking when you stop listening. I'd like to kind of... Now, someone said as long as you want. That's dangerous. I want to bring out three phrases here in verse 11, uh, is the first one. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 20, I am perplexed about you. And everybody who's ever pastored a church knows exactly what those mean. I don't have to do any word studies. I don't have to parse any verbs to prove to you I went to Dallas Seminary. I don't have to do any of that. Everybody knows what that means. uh, It's is—it's part of the package. If you are in ministry, you will know this fear. You will invest in someone and you'll teach them and you'll disciple them and you'll mentor them and you might have even led them to Christ and you'll train them. You entrust these things to faithful men that you think will entrust these things to other men as well. And then you don't see them on Sunday and you don't see them the next Sunday and the next Sunday after that. And after about four Sundays, you'll call them up and you'll say, hey, is everybody okay? And he said, yeah, pastor, we just got in a bad rut. Now, I don't usually say what I want to say at first. I usually save that for later. But my impulse is to say, rule number one in the Christian faith, if you, get out of a, if you get in a bad rut, get out of it immediately. I have entrusted and invested a lot in you, and I'm expecting a return on my investment because we got a lot of work to do. Our church supports missionaries on every inhabited continent on this globe. Every day they put their life and the lives of their children on the line, and you can't get out of a rut six and a half billion people on this planet and about two billion of them have never heard the gospel in a culturally relevant way and you can't get out of a rut now i don't usually say that on the first phone call and you will know what it is to make enemies because you tell the truth when's the last time you heard a message a sermon on divorce now i'm not talking about the warm fuzzy God loves you anyway, how to recover from it kind of sermon. I'm talking about the don't do it sermon. I'm talking about the swear to your own hurt kind of sermon. And I still get sick in my stomach when I have to deliver those. Because I know I'm going to hurt somebody. But those sermons must be preached. You will know perplexity, pastoral perplexity. I am perplexed about you. I am confused, I'm bewildered, I'm befuddled, I am slack-jawed. Why would you exchange freedom for prison, life for death, robes for rags, steak for crumbs? Why, like a dog, have you returned to your own vomit? What were you thinking? That's what the Greek word actually means. (laughs) And you'll be perplexed. But you will still love them. And you will go after them. And you will plead with them. You see this in Paul here. I plead with you, verse 12. I plead with you, brothers, become like me. And he doesn't give up and he doesn't let go. And he pleads with them passionately, transparently, authentically, emotionally, personally. This is the heart of a pastor. This is a shepherd's heart one who is charged with protecting the flock of God, and you will watch them make decisions that will perplex you as they destroy their lives and their marriage and their families, and you'll think to yourself, why do you do it? They will, they will exchange the pure milk of God's word for the raw sewage of this world, and they'll drink it down to the dregs, and then they'll be surprised that they get sick, and they'll come to you and expect you to put everything all back together again, and you'll try to do it. It's just part of the deal. Because this is not about you. This is about God. This is not about the advance of your career. It's about the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is not about your glory. It is all about the glory of God. Now, lest you think I'm trying to take a theological agenda and press it on to the text that I have mentioned the glory of God, I would like to say to you, you say, wait a minute, you just did the four solas, that fifth one. There's not anything about the fifth one there. But I would suggest to you that Galatians starts and ends with the glory of God. Let me show you the ending in Galatians chapter 6 where it says in verse 14, Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, except in the thing that makes me look the worst and him look the best. May I never boast, may I never try to steal or take even a portion of the glory that belongs to him for my salvation. It ends with the glory of God, and it begins with the glory of God. Galatians chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 5, that salutation, that greeting there. Start in verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present a- evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh. Of all the letters and the epistles in the entire New Testament, there's only one that makes reference to the glory of God in the greeting. And it's this one. Because that is what is at stake when justification by faith alone is at stake. And so he uh, teaches them doctrine. And he does not allow doctrine to disappear from this church. If we contribute anything to our salvation, we are entitled to at least a portion of God's glory. But I rather like what William Temple said. William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. He died in 1944. And Archbishop Temple said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Now, like one man said, that's pretty good for an archbishop. <laughs> seminary is a place to dream and dream big dreams. And as some of you seek and dream about the pastor, and I know a number of you probably are in the pastored already. That's the way it was when I was in seminary. And probably you have dreamed, just like all of us did, of having a church that grew, and we all want churches that grow. And maybe you even dream of having a large church and having a megachurch. Fox News says that the largest church in the United States is in Texas, which shouldn't surprise us and certainly doesn't surprise Texans. And here's what Fox News says in an article. At the biggest church in the country, doesn't matter what name, it is. This pastor preaches to some 25,000 people a week. Church growth experts think that this will probably be the first church to reach 35,000 people every Sunday who will attend. Here's what the uh, reporter says of the pastor's preaching, sin is not on the menu. They ask the pastor, what's the secret to your success? He says that his goal is to give people a boost for the week. I think for years there have been a lot of hellfire and damnation. You go to church and figure out what you're doing wrong, and you leave feeling bad like you're not going to make it. We believe in focusing on the goodness of God. And I wonder if the pastor, in reacting to one extreme, has gone to another. I know what you're going to say. You got to end with grace. You got to end with grace. You got to end with grace. Amen, brother. End your sermons with grace, but let's start them with grace. And I wonder if John Newton may have been onto something when he said, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved." As if this theologian, who occasionally wrote hymns, saw a logical and chronological order that God must by His grace make you feel bad before God by His grace can make you feel good. I wonder if Isaiah was on to something when he said, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, And each seraph had six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And as they were speaking at the sound of their voice, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the King, the Lord, the Almighty. And he never once said he felt good. It seems to me that if they walk away from your sermons, and they feel good, it does not matter one bit if they do not also walk away from your sermons saying, here am I, Lord. Send me. He didn't feel good. He felt what one theologian has called a holy trauma. I like that. July the 8th, 1731, Jonathan Edwards made his way to Boston to deliver the commencement sermon to the boys at Harvard. The sermon was entitled, God Glorified in Man's Dependence, and here's what he said. Hereby is demonstrated how great God's glory is considered comparatively or as compared with the creature's. By the creature being thus holy and universally dependent on God, it appears that the creature is nothing and that God is all. Hereby it appears that God is infinitely above us and that God's strength and wisdom and holiness are infinitely greater than ours. However great and glorious the creature apprehends God to be, yet if he be not sensible of the difference between God and him so as to see that God's glory is great compared with his own, he will not be disposed to give God the glory due his name. If the creature in any respect sets himself upon a level with God or exalts himself to any competition with God, however he may apprehend that great honor and profound respect may belong to God from those that are at a greater distance, he will not be so sensible of its being due from him. So much the more men exalt themselves, so much the less will they surely be disposed. To exalt God. Now that kind of preaching may or may not get you a megachurch. I hope it does. We need some well-prepared and graduates in charge of some of these operations. But whatever you do, don't cheat to get it. Don't dilute the gospel of Christ. Don't delete the gospel of Christ. Don't distort the gospel of Christ. Preach the gospel of Christ. Display it in all its glory. Declare it from the highest mountain. Defend it with your life. Our Father, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this great and invaluable, precious treasure entrusted to people who are made of dirt and clay. What a privilege, what an honor. May we be always faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.